0: welcome to the modern art notes podcast i'm tyler green this week we start with valentin de bologna and keith christiansen along with anique lemoine christiansen is the co-curator of valentin de bologna beyond caravaggio an exhibition at the metropolitan museum of art through january 16 2017. valentin a frenchman who moved to rome early in his career was one of the best painters in the generation that followed caravaggio valentin died young at age 41 and only 60 or so of his paintings are now known. 45 of them are in the Met's show. The wonderfully readable, beautifully designed exhibition catalog was published by the Met and distributed by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for 60 bucks. Christensen is the chairman of the Met's Department of European Paintings. On the second half of the show, art historian Christina Brian Rosenberger discusses her new book, Drawing the Line, the Early Work of Agnes Martin. The book examines the first decade of Martin's career, roughly 1957 to 67, a period that Martin herself downplayed and to which most retrospective exhibitions have paid little attention. The book was published by University of California Press. Amazon offers it for $50. In addition, the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum is now showing an Agnes Martin retrospective. It's on view through January 11th next year. But first, Keith Christensen, after the break. After a major three-year expansion, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art returns as the largest art museum in the U.S. dedicated to modern and contemporary art. New exhibitions include works from the Doris and Donald Fisher Collection, with dedicated galleries spanning the careers of Andy Warhol, Alexander Calder, Agnes Martin, Chuck Close, Gerhard Richter, and many more. Experience the new SFMOMA, where kids 18 and under always get in free. To book tickets and for more information, visit sfmoma.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents In Real Life, 100 Days of Film and Performance. Now through January, head to The Hammer to see four month-long film exhibitions, public rehearsals in the museum's courtyard, and 15 weekends of performances by artists including Trajal Harrell, Dan Levinson, Mutant Salon, Jennifer Moon and Laub, Allison O'Daniel, Deneen Olesen, Laura Schnitger, Simon Lee, Simon Lung, and more. The four month-long film exhibitions include seven short films examining crisis and technology from Artists Film International, Echo, the videos of One Otrick's Point, Never, and related works How to Love a Watermelon Woman, featuring the films of Cheryl Dunier, and The Workshop Years, Black British Film and Video After 1981. Find a schedule and details for in real life at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free for good. The Wexner Center for the Arts at the Ohio State University is the only Midwest venue for Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, 1933 to 1957. On view through January 1st. This immersive exhibition spotlights an experimental school and its extraordinary impact on contemporary art with works by 90 artists, including Annie and Joseph Albers, Buckminster Fuller, Jacob and Gwendolyn Knight-Lawrence, Robert Rauschenberg, and Cy Twombly, plus a schedule of in-gallery performances. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. Keith Christensen, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Very pleased.
0: You open the catalog, the preface of the catalog, with a story about visiting the French town of, and I'm going to botch the pronunciation here, Chambéry?
1: That's Chambéry and saint Saint jean Maurienne. Yes.
0: I was close. It's a French town of about 60,000 people. It's about as far east of Lyon as it is south of Geneva, just to give people an idea of where it is. It's a lovely little story that brings together several threads that run through the catalog and the show, scholarship, discovery, recognition. And I thought maybe you telling that story might be a good place to start.
1: Yes, well, this is towards the end of the organization of the exhibition of Valentin de Bologna, an artist who I've loved for many, many years, and who I thought was really such a crucial figure in early 17th century painting that it was time to do an exhibition on him. So we are now in the last stages. We're checking off the list of what we have not seen. And my colleague in France, Annick Lemoine, said, you know, we have to go to Saint-Jean-Maurienne. I looked on the map, figured out how the best way to get there, and with fast trains now, believe it or not, you can go from Paris to Chambéry in something, something like three hours. Had to sleep overnight. Next morning, took a car, and we had an hour drive to saint jean maurienne through the foothills of the Alps. Striking sunny day to the cathedral where we were met by the person who was in charge of art in the area of Savoy. And they had taken the picture down from the walls of the sacristy, it normally hangs about 20 feet off the floor, sitting on pads in the sacristy for us to look at, and both my colleague and I thought, this is a fantastic picture, because it's what I call and what we've come to call in 17th century uh, studies as pictures of a dress. A picture that faces the viewer directly, raises his hand, mouth open, and he is actually made to appear to be speaking to us. And I thought, this is a picture I already see on axis in our exhibition, addressing viewers as they walk through the gallery. And also, of course, as I looked, I said, oh my God, Anik, we know, we've seen this model before. He's Daniel in the painting in the Louvre. And this takes us to another aspect of this this extraordinary artist. His favorite models who he recasts in different roles as he paints pictures. And some of them he stays with for four or five years. Others are, uh, are in his pictures for maybe a period of one or two years, and then he gets a new cast. And it takes us into what I like to call the theater of painting in the early 17th century.
0: And that painting is St. John the Baptist. We'll have an image on manpodcast.com. The exhibition at the Metropolitan opens um, not with Valentin, but with three paintings by other painters. One of the three is a Ribera from around 1615 or so, when Ribera would have been about 24. Why open with a Ribera, and what does it suggest to us about the state of Valentin and, indeed, Caravagist scholarship at large?
1: If you are involved in, in the study of the past... What one realizes, in me particular, since, I've, uh, since uh, I was a graduate student now 40, over 40 years ago, the degree to which our ideas about the past have changed, and have changed both because of the questions that we ask and also of the kinds of information that have been able to be pulled out of archival documents and also from published inventories of the great collectors. Caravaggio, when I was in graduate school, was sort of taught as an isolated isolated figure. There was Caravaggio and there were his followers. I like to say now that there's Caravaggio who redefines a new kind of dynamic in painting based on the use of painting directly from, from posed models. And then there's the next generation who moves beyond the place where he was. So we open up with three of the artists who are in Rome after Caravaggio has left, he left in 1606, and after he has died, he died in 1610, the three artists who were crucial to Valentin's formation. Now, the big Ribera that you see on axis as you enter in, in many years past was was actually suggested that this might be by the young Valentin, about whom we know practically nothing. We now know, thanks to research of the last 15 years, that it belongs to, that it was painted by Giuseppe de Ribera, who arrives in Rome when he's still a teenager and spends 10 years in Rome literally painting his way to fame through something else that's completely new to our awareness of the 17th century scene, which is the art market and dealers. And it's through through this new phenomenon of art market, dealers, that Valentin too will gain traction in the art world. So these pictures really take us into the, are meant to to announce new chapter in art history. Giuseppe de Ribera is the defining figure among these young people. He rather than Caravaggio is the catalyst for all of these artists. And when he leaves for, uh, abandons Rome for Naples where he becomes the painter to the Viceroy in 1616, it's Valentin who assumes that position. So this is a rewriting, it's a rewriting of early 17th century art history, if you like.
0: And it's on the walls. Just just to add one more element to that timeline, Caravaggio, as you said, is out of Rome. He's in exile by the late spring of 1606. Valentin arrives in Rome somewhere between 1609 but he's certain, or, or or in 1614. He's certainly in Rome by 1614. You assign some of Valentin's preeminence to the way in which he and, and peers such as Ribera present ongoing action in his work, kind of a building upon Caravaggio, whose action could sometimes feel frozen in place or posed in a specific moment that that doesn't necessarily continue. Is there a good example or or two that, that highlights that?
1: Yeah, I would say that one of them is a picture from the Barberini collection in Rome, which is Christ chasing money changers from the temple because number one, it's incredibly dynamic with a huge diagonal. And it's, it's a picture that, that I would particularly like to cite because it's quite clear that Valentin goes back to the Contarelli Chapel in San Luigi de Francesi to look at Caravaggio's famous Martyrdom of St. Matthew. And he, he's clearly looked at it with a critical eye. He says, centralized composition, figures posed, the light sort of freezes them in a time zone, I want something that's dynamic, off-center, diagonal, with the light flickering across so that it's an action, something in action. Caravaggio frames his pictures with two figures in the foreground. I want my two figures to be falling out of the picture. I'm going to cut them. And one of the great art historians of the 20th century, Roberto Longhi, said, it's like a camera that arbitrarily chooses a small piece of the action, but because the camera hadn't been invented, it's the imagination of the artist that crops it. Nobody crops pictures like uh, Valentin prior to to Degas, and he does it so that the picture has infinite expansion both in time and in space and a shared space with the viewer.
0: We'll have an image of this painting on on the website. One of the things I noticed about this painting is that it's kind of at the beginning of when Valentin is beginning to add many, many more people to his paintings, where the cast grows you know instead of being four or five people there's a there's a, a much broader cast do you know why or what prompted him to to do two things one add more people in the paintings and two to kind of activate the edges in the way you just described
1: i think the the answer to the first part of of more people ambition he's very very ambitious and you know his uh one of his colleagues and friends a German painter by the name of Joachim van Sandraert, who fortunately wrote biographies of an, uh, of an artist, actually uh, actually writes down, Valentin had determined to bow to no one. In other words, he set out to be uh, the great painter. This meant in Rome several things. There were the models of Raphael and Michelangelo that they had left. There was the model of classical antiquity. And then there was the most recent legacy of Caravaggio and Annibale Carracci. So as he looks around, he realizes the most uh, the, the the kind of painting that is the most highly admired are what we call history paintings, paintings that choose a specific moment, action, moral or historic significance, and brings it to life for the viewer. So it is it, it really is the ambition on that stage. The other part about activating the picture really comes from the kind of criticism. That was leveled against Caravaggio. It was allowed that uh, that by painting from uh, from posed models, the pictures had a greater quality of physical presence, of immediacy, of, uh, of, uh, of extraordinary, striking reality from anything that had preceded him. But it was also said that with that shaft of light hitting the figures... And with the figures, actually, you had the sense of the model holding a pose. And so you had lost a sense of movement within the picture. And Valentin listens carefully. He looks around and he constructs a way to move beyond that by using the model, but more freely and opening up brushwork so that the picture conveys, uh, really does convey movement.
0: That movement is in lots of Ribera's as well. Do we have any evidence or knowledge of... How and when they might have interacted, or how, when, and where they might have seen each other's work and, and responded to it, or is that scholarship for the future?
1: Well, you know, we have we have so little information about Valentin, and we have actually very little information about Ribera, other than what we're told in in the early. You can't really call them biographies; they're more or less notices about the artist. But they all lived in the same neighborhood, and what you have in Rome in the in the teens of the uh, 17th century is a whole group of young artists arriving from north of the Alps. Many of them are very young. Some of them are teenagers. Ribera was a teenager when he arrived. Others are in their early 20s. Some have had some past education in painting, some past experience in some, a painter's workshop. Others have never picked up a brush. They all live in the same area. They all meet each other, and because they're all foreigners, foreigners all tend to group together, they go tavern hopping, they go whoring, they go drinking, they all, jo- they form a kind of a clandestine group called the Birds of a Feather. They share models, and in the case of Riberon, in the picture we have displayed, there is a bald-headed man who appears in the paintings of a number of caravagesque painters. So, obviously, they all studied from the same models, and they, would have, they, they all knew each other. Uh, what, the, what the nature of their relationship was beyond that, can't say. But they all knew what, uh, they were all looking over each other's uh, shoulders.
0: That bald man is in the center of of the Ribera, which, of course, will be be on the website. My guest is Keith Christensen. We'll be right back after a break. The Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, D.C., presents the first major U.S. survey of Ragnar Kartensen, hailed by The New York Times as, quote, one of the most celebrated performance artists anywhere. Spellbinding, poignant, and humorous, this unprecedented solo exhibition brings together live endurance theater, immersive video, music, photography, and painting to introduce U.S. audiences to one of today's most exciting and evolving artists. Now on view at the Hershorn, Visit hirshhorn.si.edu for more. Get an insider's look at one of your favorite art institutions. The Iris is the Getty's blog, offering an engaging, behind-the-scenes look at art in all its aspects. It's a project of the entire Getty community, written by curators, educators, scientists, guest speakers, and many others. Find out how a Getty curator reunited the head and body of an ancient sculpture and explore the charming mystery of an artist's dog who shows up in several manuscripts. Now you can go behind the scenes at the Getty every day by subscribing to the Iris and receiving an email whenever there is a new post. To learn more and to subscribe, visit getty.edu iris. and now back to my conversation with Keith Christensen. You mentioned live models. Caravaggio worked from live models, Valentin did, of course. How many sketches or drawings of Valentins do we have? And what does that, that number, such as it is, <laughs> tell us about how we work?
1: We have no certain drawings by Valentin, just as we have no certain drawings by Caravaggio. And it's worth recalling that Velasquez, as well, there are a handful of, uh, of, of drawings when I say a handful, I'm literally talking about three or four drawings, and they're just very quick sketches, ideas. No actual drawings from life, no detailed drawings, which are the bread and butter of, uh, of, 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 of classical academic training, and what Raphael and Michelangelo would have done, or indeed Annibale, Carracci and most 17th century painters. So. Most of the work was done directly on the canvas, and it's been through our examination of some of the pictures, both of Caravaggio and of Valentin, and indeed of Ribera, with infrared reflectography, that we've been able to begin to understand how they laid out a composition, a complex composition, into which they could then insert posed. Models so that it would have both a quality of coherence, integrity as a composition, but would have that, but would also uh, give one the feeling of you are there. These are real people. Uh, and with Valentin, it would, they were done with brush drawings, great sweeping brush drawings. Actually, in the catalog, we've reproduced a few of these, and some of them look astonishingly modern in their freedom. And uh, these, by, by this mechanism, he lays out the composition and then brings, brings in his favorite models to sit before him while he, uh, while he paints the figure in question.
0: A couple of the X-ray images in the catalog, or the infrared really images in the catalog, even show how Valentin animates the clothing his sitters is wearing through the changes he makes in it. They're really, they're really striking.
1: You know, one of the things that that I only that that only struck me once we had installed the pictures. What is the uh, catalog number four, which is actually Valentin as Saint John the Baptist. It's the earliest. It's what I consider to be the first picture he does. If you look at the if you look at the figure sitting on the rock with the red drapery, the position of of his one hand and the position of his other hand, you'll realize that he's, that we are actually seeing Valentin holding the brush in one hand, his palette in the other, looking in the mirror, painting himself, but of course not painting the brush and the palette. But it's, a, it's exactly analogous to self-portraits of artists standing before the easel, painting themselves as they look in a mirror. So this is his first picture, and it's himself as St. John the Baptist, which takes us into a very sort of modern dynamic, I think, about what happens... When when you have recognizable people portraying other people, the conflation of past, present, the undercutting of an ideal world of a fictional world of painting, the quality, the the, the manners in which you now create a new kind of reality that incorporates the viewer.
0: You'd figured out some of that by the time you wrote the catalog, because there's a great moment in the catalog where you make an observation related to that St. John, which dates to about 1613, 1614, when, when Valentine arrives in Rome, and the 1631, I think it's the painting of Samson.
1: Samson, that's
0: right. What did you notice about the sitters in those two paintings?
1: Well, you know, my French colleague and I were went to Cleveland. The picture that you're talking about is of Samson in meditation. And underwent restoration. It's an absolutely glorious picture. This picture has long attracted me, number one, because I think it's a picture a picture that has such close analogies with Velasquez, who was visiting Rome at exactly the time that this was being painted and was associated with the Barberini. But we went to see it in the conservation studio, we were looking at the infrared imaging, we were looking at the X-rays, and as I sat before it, I said, "You know, we know this person. We know this person." He's the same one who's in that earliest picture of St. John the Baptist. Since 15 years, more or less, separate these two pictures, we're at the beginning of his career, at the end, there's only one person it could be. It's Valentin. It's a self-portrait. And an idea like this had been put into circulation regarding the early St. John the Baptist, but I think we can say with great confidence now that we have the artist himself in this case, a picture painted for Cardinal Francesco Barberini, one of uh, perhaps the most uh, esteemed collector of his day, he would have seen that Samson was also a personification of Valentin de Bologna. And it's that that I find really, really intriguing because this is, in fact, the, the issue that they raised, the added dimension that it gives to the story, that it's enacted by a recognizable figure. And we know that this happened as early as Caravaggio, when in the famous Love Conquers All, or Cupid Triumphant, that's in Berlin, where the person who enacted, enacted Cupid was Cecho del Caravaggio. And we know this because a British tourist going to the Giustiniani collection is told this. He said, you know, this was Caravaggio's lover and, uh, and model. He was 12 years old. So this gave an added dimension to the painting.
0: In in the Samson story, of course, the jawbone of an ass, which is in the painting, is is you know it's part of the biblical story. It's part of how Samson slays a thousand people. But in this painting, once once you lay out that story, one can squint and see the jawbone as a, as a palate.
1: <laughs> yes, that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. There's also the the fact that this is the only Samson I know that is not shown as the triumphant Jewish hero, but a person lost in meditation after the deeds he has done, which which, of course, heroically killing a thousand Philistines, but the catalyst for that was the loss of his beloved. And he he brought the the kinds of uh, difficulties he brought upon himself, it transforms the painting. And throughout Valentin's work, I think you find yourself for the first time in what I like to think of as a a new modern psychology of painting. Paintings as meditations. Paintings that are meant to bring to 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 make the viewer not admire the skill of the artist so much as to bring them into a meditation about the character of the either the dramatic action or, in the case of the concert pictures, of the ephemeral nature of uh, of pleasure in this world or of how we bring. Uh, we, we bring the worst things upon ourselves.
0: One of the the devices—that's probably not quite the right word—that Valentin uses in painting after painting, especially kind of in 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 the early ten or fifteen years, is a table. It's the same table. It's in picture after picture after picture. Any idea why he liked that table so much?
1: <laughs> well, when when we're talking about a table, of course, I think you're not talking about a real table. You're talking instead about that. Uh, a fragment of class, uh, of classical of an unta- of an entablature that has a relief on it. Is right.
0: Yes, it's the people in the painting are using it as the, a, as the a people table are shirt. using
1: it as a table, and obviously it's meant to suggest ancient Rome, the the or the, the quality of ancient Rome that all tourists love. Right, that you walk around the street and you see embedded into a building a piece of class piece of of Roman architecture, or there's a Roman statue on the uh, on the street. All of us love this aspect, so I think that's there. But I think, think as your question suggests, it's intentionally provocative, because there's a contrast not only between past and present, but a contrast between the classical world and the everyday action that's that's taking place. All of the reliefs on the front are allegorical reliefs of a very erudite character. But uh, but the the figures who are using it at the table are drinking eating, playing music, having their fortune told, so there is a real contradiction. and I think that's it's that dynamic that 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 gives a little extra frisson to to the paintings.
0: That entablature used as table, point in surfacing and painting after painting becomes a reminder to a viewer who sees many of these paintings at once um, in in the twenty first century. That Valentin is very much working within his studio and and making paintings of action in his his studio. He's not he's not painting in plein air. He's not painting at at at, at sites all over town. That the scene of the place is his studio. Is is there a way in the context of of Rome at the beginning of the 17th century that that's important or, or revelatory?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, I I had actually had, hadn't thought of it in those terms, but I think you're absolutely right. And there is a picture that comes to mind. I actually illustrate it in my my catalog essay, which is a painting by Michael Sperts, mid-century now, after Valentin, but another painter who who very much embraces painting from from models and also low-life painting. He painted a picture that's in the Rijksmuseum of a studio in which you have fragments of classical architecture, actually. They must be plaster casts all over uh, the studio and in the back is a painter painting from life. So in that sense, if we, and we happen to know that the, t- that the table of which you're, uh, uh, that, that you've spoken about, the reliefs on the front are actually not reliefs from a piece of stone in tablature, but rather are plaster casts from terracotta reliefs and we have a number of cases where we know that these were part of a normal painter's repertory in their workshop, props in other words. So yes, in that sense, uh, it does two things. The reliefs are ones that many artists had in their their workshop as models. Secondly, he's reconstituted them as a classical piece of architecture, so there's an act of invention, and that in turn, if you like, has an intellectual link to what he does with his models, individual models reconceived as an entire acted out scene with an historical uh, subject. And it is the workshop, yes, it's very much part of the workshop procedure. I would only add that we have a famous story of Caravaggio being taken up on a hill, being shown the great classical antiquities and they are suggested to him as the models that he ought to be uh, that he ought to be using uh, as inspiration for his art. And his response is supposedly, nature has provided me with quite enough models, thank you. So it's a rejection of antiquity. And the dichotomy between the classicism of the table and the action taking around it is, exa- is exactly that dynamic. This is what they did. This is what I do.
0: Two more things. Valentin moves to Rome as quite a young man. Um, we've mentioned the years, but I don't know if I mentioned that this is kind of at the end of his teens or his early 20s, and then he spends his entire career there. Um, his, his background in France is basically perhaps learning from his father, who was a painter. So given that that Valentin maybe starts painting in France, although none, none of those survive, and spends his whole career in Rome, is there anything in his work that strikes you as particularly French, capital F French?
1: Oh, wow. This has been one of the great discussions. The French have always seen him as the most Italian of French painters. The one thing that Italians have always said is, there's a gravity, there's a seriousness to his art. There is a melancholic atmosphere or mood to his painting that is very unitalian and that is essentially French. So we're talking about what one perceives as national characteristics in these kinds of vague terms. Just remind remind you that Nicolas Poussin, who's an exact contemporary of Valentin's, had a had a strong training and actually success in Paris before he goes to Rome. His is an art of transformation from a French painter into a into a, a painter of the classical tradition based in Rome, but still painting largely for French, uh eventually for French patrons. Claude Lorraine goes to Rome as a pastry cook and he takes a painting later in his life, learning it entirely in uh in Italy from uh, Italian artists so you have a funny uh, uh, you, you have a funny sense of what is a national artist in this environment, how much of what we take with us from our adolescence is our defining trait. And I say this as somebody who's a Californian who has now lived on the East Coast for 45 years, and I still think of myself as a Californian. So my guess is that Valentin thought of himself as a French artist.
0: Finally, we've referred a number of times to things we don't know and how much we don't know about Valentin and his contemporaries. What do you think we can realistically hope to learn in the coming years what, what where could scholarship go that would fill in some blanks for us that maybe could realistically happen
1: he needed to have gotten into more trouble with the police we would you know that's the way we find out that's <laughs> like the caravaggio. way we find out information about caravaggio that's right what we know about caravaggio comes from the police records and then there were the biographies of people who objected to his art and for Valentin, we did come up with one document in the last stages of the writing of the catalogue. A colleague of ours in Rome said, I've just found the earliest document of care of, of Valentin's presence in Rome. I'm not sure where we will find the information. There is one essay in the, in the catalogue about Valentin's reputation in the 17th century in the Grand Siècle. Patronage, and I think that's the real key issue here. How is it that he painted these ambitious pictures for the open market? It just seems so extraordinary. There must have been people who were aware of his genius and who began patronizing him early on. When did the French start buying him? Because by mid-century, he's one of the hottest items in Paris. The same people who were buying works by Poussin were buying works by Valentin. So I would say that uh, that. This is the probably the door for finding for beginning to establish what what what, what was going on. You see uh, also the other is the art market we 're gradually learning about who the dealers were, how they promoted works of art, and so forth and I think that bit by bit we'll get little pieces of the puzzle, but it 's unlikely we'll come upon a treasure trove that will uh, that that will give us a big insight into what kind of person he was, uh, what his life like was in Rome. Mm.
0: And of course, big shows like this can can sometimes lead to people finding some things. So.
1: Yes, I hope it, I hope it'll be a catalyst for who, for a whole new generation of young people who will find him so fascinating, so intriguing, and the moment such a defining moment in the history of uh, of Western art that they will want to uh, to go to the archives and see what they can dig up.
0: Keith Christensen, thanks so much.
1: Thank you very much. Great pleasure.
0: The Nasher Sculpture Center presents Run for President by artist Catherine Andrews, open through January 8th. The Dallas Morning News calls the show presciently timed and eerily paralleling the circus-esque plotline of the 2016 presidential election. Experience how film props, iconic imagery, and polished steel sculptures create a visual connection between electoral politics, media, and mass spectacle. More information at NasherSculptureCenter.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Southern Accent, Seeking the American South in Contemporary Art, an exhibition that questions and explores the complex and contested space of the American South. This unprecedented exhibition takes on Southern identity as an open-ended question and reframes the way we look at the South in contemporary art. Southern Accent encompasses a broad spectrum of media and approaches from both within and outside the region, demonstrating that Southerness is more of a shared sensibility than a consistent culture. Southern Accent includes work by 60 artists focusing on contemporary work from the past 30 years. It includes earlier work dating back to the 1950s as important foundational and historical markers, opening September 1st at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. Next up, art historian and author Christina Rosenberger. Her new book is Drawing the Line, the Early Work of Agnes Martin. The book looks at the first decade of Martin's career, roughly 1957 to 1967 or so, a period that Martin herself discounted and to which most retrospective exhibitions have paid little attention. The book is from University of California Press. Christina Rosenberger, welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast.
2: Thanks so much, Tyler. Thank you for having me.
0: Why does so much of the art historical consideration of Agnes Martin begin in 1957 and not in the late 1940s when, 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 when she began to professionalize as a painter?
2: I think the most prominent answer is really that Agnes Martin disavowed her early work. Uh, Martin was an artist, as you can read in many of her writings, who really, truly and fully believed in the idea of inspiration. Martin believed that she was a vessel and that this inspiration would come into her mind, fully formed, and then her job was to take that inspiration and transform it into a painting, take that little postage stamp size painting in her head and transfer it into something that was six by six feet, um, one of her glorious paintings, and You know, she talks a lot about the difficulty of getting the scale and sizing those paintings up. But she really did believe that these inspirations came to her fully formed. And she was a great critic of her own work. She created an entire narrative around her work. She had a great marketing strategy in some ways. You know, she left... New York. She established her critical reputation early on in New York. And then in 1967, she held a bonfire and burned a lot of paintings. And then she just full scale stopped painting and left New York. And she traveled around. She went to Canada. She went to the West and eventually saw a vision of of an adobe brick and decided that she was being called back to New Mexico. So she went and built a house and a studio and a number of outbuildings on a very remote mesa outside of Cuba, New Mexico, and lived a very primitive life for a long time, no electricity, no running water. And then she began to start painting again, eventually after doing a wonderful series of prints first. And so Martin left, you know, she left New York, she left the whole critical apparatus of art history behind The paradox, of course, is that as soon as she left New York, people became enormously interested in her work. She already had critical renown when she left, and she knew that. But this idea of this this painter in the desert, this very ascetic painter, became very powerful for people. And so she got this reputation as sort of a sage in the desert. And what's funny when you begin to read about Martin is you realize, and you talk to people, especially artists, that over time, Martin was much more social than she appeared. There are these great stories of people driving over these arroyos, which when they're flooded is a really dangerous thing to do in New Mexico, to try to find Martin and try to see her on this mesa outside of Cuba and getting horribly lost. And Martin would often have to come rescue them in her pickup truck with gallons of water to hydrate them. And so... You know, so because of this, Martin, so she saw a lot of people, she talked to a lot of artists, so a lot of these artists and journalists would write this up. And that combined, those stories combined with the criticism that Martin did of her own work, which often came in the form of parables or quasi poetic writings about her work, actually form quite a significant body of of work that tells us in many ways how to see her paintings and how she wanted us to see her paintings. And she was very prescriptive. You know, her big paintings should be uh, hung a foot off the ground. You should look at them first thing in the morning and you should look at them for for a significant duration, at least a couple of minutes, according to Martin. And so I think Martin's first curators, the first people who really championed her work, really listened to that. And they were very much caught up in this narrative that Martin had created. It's incredibly compelling. So because of that, when Martin disavowed her early work and said, my work starts with the grids, this is when my, my mature vision started. This is when I fully realized what I want to do and what I want to be as a painting. People respected that. And, you know, I think the problem is that, you know, when Martin achieved that grid, she'd been painting for almost 20 years. And Martin's grids You know, it's interesting. They're such incredible paintings and they do so much for a viewer once you give them the time and once you really look at them. They're so incredibly rewarding as paintings and they're so successful, Tyler, that I think people get swept up in them and, you know, people haven't really taken the time to pull back and say, yes. These are incredibly successful paintings. These paintings do so much for the viewers. How did we get there? What did we do? How did Martin create these paintings? They're incredibly sophisticated in terms of their materials and their techniques. And Martin painted and painted and painted until she got there. She has a great quote where she says that she painted for 20 years before she found a painting that she liked. So there was incredible toil. There was incredible ambition And so what I've tried to do in my new book is really not disavow Martin's own belief in the idea of inspiration, but instead to highlight the work, the discernment, the incredible rigor that Martin learned over a period of 20 years and executed over a period of 20 years so that once she found the vision that she wanted, she had full command of her artistic abilities and could execute it perfectly.
0: Couple couple quick things. Enough people visited her in New Mexico in 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 those years at the end of the forties and then and then later in the fifties that you note there's an entire subgenre of Martin objects that are Martin drawn maps to where she lives. <laughs> And then in the context of, of artists destroying work, this was not an unusual thing, particularly in this period of, of early American modernism or, or mid to early American modernism. David Park, of course, does, does the same thing. In the context of Martin's disavowal of her early work, there's, a, there's an interesting line in the book in which you say that, quote, Martin's attempts to shape the narrative of her work also extends to things that she did not say. What types of things did she leave out of her explanations of either her work or her outlining of her life narrative for this kind of early part of her career?
2: Martin is an artist who did not leave behind an archive. There are scattered letters out there that she wrote to friends that are usually really wonderful and very interesting. And they're those wonderful lined notebooks that she wrote a lot of her writings in that have been reproduced in facsimile in so many catalogs. So we have that. But beyond that, there's no no real paper trail. And Martin, you know, she also, she edited her work. She edited it absolutely rigorously. If you look at these early photographs, that Mildred Tolbert took in the mid-50s of Martin in her Tao studio. You can see wonderful paintings on the wall. You can see stacks. I think in one picture I counted 17 canvases stacked up right next to each other, leaning against the wall. And we have so few of those canvases left. So your point is very well taken. She very tightly edited her work, which is not at all unique to artists. She also edited the narrative around her life. So there are two areas that my book does not focus on as much as other books surrounding Martin do. I chose not to talk in depth about her sexuality, and I didn't talk in depth about her diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. And I started my work on Martin right after she passed away, Um, and much of my work is based on oral histories. And the people who were ready and willing to talk about Martin were not interested in talking about those topics, which are clearly
0: if I could just jump in really quickly for listeners who want more on those subjects, Nancy Princenthal's biography from 2014, I think, does does get there.
2: Yes, Nancy Princenthal's biography does a wonderful job. And I think the, the greatest contribution of, of Nancy's book is that she talks about paranoid schizophrenia and how difficult it was for Martin to manage illness and how we should be very careful to divorce the work from her illness, and I think that's an incredibly important point that I'm so grateful to Nancy for making and there's a little bit on this as well in the the catalog from the Tate from the wonderful retrospective catalog so those are the two big things that I think Martin intentionally left out of her narrative the other thing that was really germane for me that she left out I'm an art historian who's very very interested in the materials and the techniques I want to know how a painter painted exactly what kind of paint they used or what kind of ink how big the brush was all of those little nitty-gritty details are the Way that I start to understand what a painter is doing on a canvas. And Martin did not leave behind a great trail talking about her materials and techniques. So for me, as a materialist art historian, I was really spent my time looking very carefully at the paintings and getting my information from the paintings themselves.
0: Let's dive into some of the paintings. You write about three fairly little known watercolors that exist from 1946ish 47 they are not you know masterpieces of the thing but there are two things about them that are interesting one is by the third one there's a very evident intense john Maron quality to 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 the thing you know that's suggestive of of someone at whom she was looking and then the other thing which i had and, and, and you write this in the book and i had not It had not occurred to me it was an important thing until I read it in the book, and and then it seems very important, is that watercolors dry fast in the dry air of the high desert. Why was that important, and how would that become important to her kind of moving through the, the, the 40s and into the 50s?
2: Yes, Tyler, I love the watercolors. They're an index, first and foremost, of how very conventional Martin's work was at the beginning of her life, her artistic life, but also very much an index of how accomplished an artist she was. There's absolutely the John Marin connection that you saw, and Martin was painting outside. She was taking her paints into the desert landscape, setting up using her watercolors. And watercolors dry extraordinarily quickly in the desert, especially in the high desert in Taos. So it was a pretty unforgiving medium in a lot of ways. Anytime Martin would put a mark on paper if she wanted to wipe it away or wanted to change something with watercolor, she had to do it incredibly quickly. So there's a decisiveness that's important there. And I think there's also, you know, watercolor sort of goes two ways in Martin's career. She ends up using a lot of very thin washes. There's a beautiful drawing um, at the Museum of Modern Art from the early 50s, I believe, where Martin is very much looking at Rothko's multiforms and using these very thin, very dilute layers of color. And that that is very reminiscent of her techniques with watercolor, which she learned here. And there's also, you know, it also goes into a different medium. Agnes Martin did a lot of portrait, not a lot, but she did a couple of portraits very early on, which are fairly common student work. There's nothing that's particularly exciting or significant about them artistically. But what is interesting is that Martin was using encaustic. Encaustic, as I'm sure you and a lot of listeners know, is where you mix paint or dry pigment into a wax medium that's heated up. And so when you put that wax medium onto the encaustic itself onto the painting. It's a real it's a fascinating material because you do you use a paintbrush or a palette knife or whatever and you can actually see the mark. It holds the index of that instrument. So you can see the mark and it freezes immediately. That encaustic hardens almost immediately. So it's a pretty clear indication of what the artist is doing with their hand and again you have to be very decisive And you also get this really wonderful texture. With encaustic, it's a much thicker texture in contrast to that watercolor. And I think one of the great gifts of having an exhibition like the Retrospective at the Guggenheim is that people can go and they can look at Martin's work and really look at the paintings. There's an incredible diversity of texture and surface incident on those paintings that gets flattened out on the publications on Martin. You know, you have this glossy paper and everything sort of looks the same. And there's an incredible diversity of texture that's overlooked in Martin's work. And so while we think of Martin as using multiple layers of very, very thin acrylic paints in her work in the 70s, 80s, and until her death, except for those very, very late paintings, you know, that really does hark back to the techniques she learned with watercolor early in her career.
0: Once she learned to paint quickly, is that something she holds on to pretty much for the rest of her career?
2: Yes, she is on record late in life, talking about how she painted very quickly, and in the banded paintings from the seventies, I do believe, and later, of course, she would rotate them as uh, so if she was painting horizontal paintings vertically, the bands would be up vertical, so that the drips those very you know that very dilute paint wouldn't drip into the wrong section of the canvas, and those were painted very, very quickly. And, you know, it's hard to tell. We don't have a lot of studio records or, you know, today you might have video of an artist painting or something like that. There is a wonderful documentary that Mary Lance made called With My Back to the World. And that does show Martin painting quickly and talking about being a speedy painter. But that's very late in life. And her early work, we don't really know. There's a wonderful image at the Menil called The Book. And, you know, I'd long looked at a lot of Martin's paintings. And sometimes you can see... With her oil paintings, if you look at the edges, if they're not framed, and you look at the tacking edges, you can see multiple layers of paint, and you can sometimes see where Martin has gone back in and reworked a painting, and I was really, really curious to see if this had happened with any of her early works, and Brad Epley, a conservator, an incredibly talented conservator at the Manila actually looked very carefully at the Manil's work called The Book, and you can see in the book where Martin went in and changed her ideas, and changed their... Some forms were enlarged. There were some incisions that were painted over. And this it really shows that even though Martin was talking about having an inspiration that came fully formed into her head, that there was a lot of work and a lot of adjustment that actually happened on the canvas.
0: Agnes Martin goes back to New York in 51, 52, and and then, of course, eventually finds her way back out to New Mexico. But while she's in New York, you note that she... That, that, that her shift, the quote, her shift toward a more abstract idiom was fostered in the classroom, which caught my attention. How so? How in the classroom?
2: I think one of the most interesting things that happened to Martin during her year at Columbia, 1951-1952, was an exposure to Zen Buddhism through D.T. Suzuki, as Suzuki uh, had given a series of guest lectures at Columbia in March of 1951, and then was invited as a full lecturer in the spring of 1952, when Martin would have been across the street At Teachers College. And the introduction to Zen Buddhism had been published in London in English in 1948. So one assumes that it may have been available by that point in New York. And there's speculation that Martin was likely introduced to Buddhism earlier in the 40s in New Mexico and some scholars have even written that it could have been as early as her early childhood in Canada, in Vancouver. And I should put a caveat in there that we don't have actual proof that Martin was in any of Suzuki's lectures. But I think Suzuki's ethos and his teachings were very prominent at Columbia. At that time, there were newspaper articles about his lectures in the city. And I think it was just pervasive. And Martin was a very spiritual person. She did not adhere strictly to one religion or another. There's this very strong Calvinist strain in a lot of her writing and a lot of her thinking, and there's also Buddhism. So Martin sort of has a very polymorphous sense of spirituality, but I think the Zen Buddhism was incredibly important to her in a sense of sort of a quietude. And it's also worth noting the the milieu that, that Martin would would have been exposed to in relation to Suzuki. I think it's also worth mentioning the milieu of artists that were interested in Suzuki's work at the time. His lectures were a very hot topic among artists in New York. They were attended by John Cage, by Alan Watts. And these are artists who were doing very, very different things than Martin was at the time and whose careers, you know, as you know, venture off into wildly different types of art. But I think it's important to realize that Martin was shoulder to shoulder, potentially with these artists at Suzuki's lectures, learning about Zen Buddhism. And this is, Buddhism is something that infuses her work throughout, throughout the rest of her career. And so I think that while a lot of Martin's later writings really do reveal a debt to Suzuki's thought, her interest in Buddhism was, no, was by no means exclusive.
0: And in fact, there's a book of of Martin's writings that was published by Hatye Kantz about 20 years ago. One of the things I really liked about the book is that throughout it, you remind us that, you know, that there are places in America that are engaged with with the cutting edge and the avant-garde other than New York. And that both in kind of the first New Mexico period in the 40s and then when she returns in the 50s, that Martin was far less isolated from her, her peers than than the desert hermit myth or, or construction might suggest, and among not only did New Yorkers come through, but a lot of San Franciscans did too. People like Clay Spone and, and Edward Corbett. How how were they important to her? How were those are, are there specific ways in which those those visits and even her being able to see the paintings of people like Richard Diebenkorn? How important were they to her?
2: They're incredibly important. It's a wonderful question. And they're important in two ways. Martin, especially in the early 50s when she was in New Mexico, she knew she wanted to be an artist. She knew she wanted to be an ambitious artist who was doing work that could compete anywhere in the United States, and that meant New York City as well. So she had incredibly lofty ambitions, and she was very, very clear about what she wanted. What she needed was a model. She needed to know how to do this. How do you become a practicing artist who has shows, who's got critics, who's having success in the art world and who's selling their work and achieving some form of critical renown for it? And in that sense, I think B. Mandelman and Louis Reebok were incredibly important. They were two artists who'd been in New York. They were very successful. At one point, they'd shared a house in Bucks County with Jackson Pollock. So they kind of came with with a sheen of East Coast sophistication and they brought their art library with them to Taos. The they had 2,000 volumes. Martin would go over there on a daily basis after she finished painting, and she would read the art books, she would look at what B and Louis were doing, and she would really spend time talking to them. They also had subscriptions to art magazines, so they knew exactly what was happening in New York, exactly what was happening in California. And both Mandelman and Remock were also very clever about their markets. They wanted to paint in New Mexico, they liked the atmosphere of collaboration and experimentation and an artist-centered environment that Taos provided. But they were smart enough to know that Taos is not a great place to sell paintings unless you're selling what were often at the time called Aspen paintings, paintings sort of romanticized paintings of the Aspens or of Native Americans and things that like they weren't at all interested in. So they would leave. They would go to California to find galleries. They would go to New York. They would go and sell their work. And so for Martin... The Mandelman and Reebok really were a model of how to be a successful practicing artist in a lot of ways. And then you also have people like Corbett and Spohn coming through. They had come from California and New Mexico had long been a haven for artists. A lot of artists came to New Mexico to paint during the summer. Often if they were teaching at an art school, they would come during vacations as well. And create a series of sketches or a series of full works and then go back to those environments and sell those works. And so when the work they were doing in California didn't pan out for one reason or another, they ended up both in New Mexico. And Corbett and Spohn were incredibly successful and sophisticated artists. They were doing really interesting work. And a lot of the work, there's one work in particular from 1953 that Martin does that really suggests knowledge of Corbett's white painting. Corbett had these beautiful, Beautiful, beautiful white paintings where he layered numerous layers of color, bright color, and then would paint over it with layer after layer of white paint. And the idea was that you'd get this sort of spectral glow of just this barest hint of a color underneath the white that would come through and your eye would register it, but you wouldn't quite be sure what you were looking at. And Martin absolutely uses those techniques, and she uses them even later in life. They're wonderful paintings from the 70s that if you, again, look at those tacking edges, you can see a red or a blue under those layers of white. And the the criticism, if you read the criticism of the current Martin show, it's really funny reading about the islands, which is a wonderful series that Martin did now owned by the Whitney, where people are saying they see blue or they see green, and these are predominantly white paintings. And Martin's doing the same sense of layering that she learned from Corbett. Uh, She also learned a lot about the handling of paint and modulation of color, restrained use of line and surface incident, and again, color to achieve chromatic depth. So I think she learned an extraordinary amount. And I think one of the things I did, as you noted, really want to suggest was that New Mexico, even though Taos is an isolated location, been earlier Albuquerque, you know, the 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 travel, travel became easier. Magazines were being produced, people called back and forth. These artists were traveling, the ideas were traveling, the art was traveling. And so the idea that her art took a great leap forward only when she moved to New York, I think is really misleading. Certainly Martin made a breakthrough with her grids in New York and made a few made breakthroughs prior to that but the tools that she, that enabled her to make those breakthroughs were a lot of them were developed in-house.
0: Well, let's let's get Martin to the grids. There are kind of two things that that seem important in getting her to the grids. One is Ad Reinhardt and the other is constructions if you will, paintings or objects on canvas which included things like well maybe not on canvas, like boat spikes or bottle caps. Are those kind of the two things that get her to the grid? Are they equally and and contemporaneously important, or are they separate?
2: You know, that's a great question. Are they equally or contemporaneously important or separate? And one of the things that I really believe, having looked at the full scope of Martin's early work, is that she worked across media. Because her paintings can seem so similar late in life, and because there's almost... When you walk through an exhibition with a number of her later paintings, there's almost a serial feeling. And of course, with a series like The Islands, she really was working in a series. So there's this this idea that, that Martin's images, again, were fully formed in her head, and she had these inspirations, and then she created them, and that she worked primarily as a painter. But what I've come to believe is that she worked across media, and she really worked her ideas out across a range of media. And I think sculpture was enormously important. I think it's hard to understate uh, the importance of Reinhardt answering that question first, because, you know, she, she looked at Reinhardt, she looked at Rothko, she looked at Newman. Martin was a very, very astute connoisseur of modern art. She was often a little bit belated. You know, she was often looking at work that had been done before, you know, 10 years before the work the artist was doing at the moment that Martin was actually painting. But despite her belatedness, she was using the tools and Roth, uh, Reinhardt, excuse me, Reinhardt's cruciform uh, shapes are a great example of this. She was looking at Reinhardt to try to figure out the form, to try to figure out the balance and figure out the modulation of color. And once she did that, once she understood what that artist was doing and took whatever she needed from that artist's practice, she then moved on. And then, and this is all, you know, in, in the refinement of her own vision and it was an incredibly rigorous process. And with her sculptural work, uh, you really can see it. Uh, Martin created these incredible constructions. There are a few that survive now. I have a great hunch that there are more out there. And the constructions really started because Martin thought that she was trying to find a way out of abstract expressionism, right, late-generation abstract expressionism. And she was living on Coenties Slip, and Coenties Slip is near the South Street Seaport. It's a very isolated, very beautiful area of lower Manhattan, and a lot has been written about this. But the idea of Coenties Slip as a refuge, I think, is important. And it, in many ways, was a refuge from abstract expressionism. You know, this whole macho sort of cedar tavern thing is really not what Martin was all about. And so she found a group of artists who had, while they weren't a homogeneous group, they very much were doing their own thing. They had a distinct sensibility about what they were doing and what they were interested in. And a lot of these artists were trawling the docks and the parking lots and the construction sites of Quinti slips for materials. When you think about it, abstract expressionism was often done on very large canvases You think of Newman, especially in regard to that, and Rothko, certainly. And those kind of canvases are incredibly expensive. And Martin didn't have that kind of money. She was a single woman supporting herself, and she was painting full-time. She didn't have a side job as a teacher or anything like that at that point. So her resources were limited. So she joined artists such as Robert Indiana, scavenging on the docks to find these objects which she was then turning into constructions. An assemblage was very much in the air at the time, so what she was doing wasn't unique, but it really helped her work through the placement of objects into a more linear geometric format. It also really helped her in terms of the materiality of her work. There's a great, great work called Water, which is a board which has these thin, thin wires wrapped around it. And then there's six bottle caps that are affixed to the, on top of those wires. And they sit up from the surface of the wires and they cast shadows and it's a really beautiful work. There's a lot of movement implied in such a static work. And then Martin goes on. That was 1958, and then two years later, 1960, she creates a painting called Night Harbor, uh, which is a beautiful, again, a beautiful, very haunting uh, painting in a dark palette. And there's circles set in the middle of that painting, a gridded series of perfectly uniform circles. And if you look at that painting sideways. And look really carefully. You can see that each circle is outlined with graphite. And the idea is, and what I've seen in Martin's work, is that she took the round form of those bottle caps that are metal on water and saw how the light was reflecting off of them. And then she transferred that to graphite with Night Harbor, and it makes those circles pop, and it's absolutely what makes that painting work. And it's the smallest of details, but she's really taking that metallic glint of the bottle tops and transferring it into something as subtle as the graphite line. That's also how Martin gets from works like Collie, which is rectangular wooden supports stuck together into a square format that has uh, black and white wooden pegs hammered into them. And then she... that work was actually really beautifully hung on the wall above the desk of Lenore Tawny, who is a fiber artist working also on Cointy's slip and a friend of Martin's. And below it is a work called Homage to Greece," And that's a patchwork of very small squares of canvas that have been laid down on top of each other in a patchwork pattern. And then two thirds of the way up is an arc of nails, of nail heads. And you can see Martin working from the three-dimensionality of those wooden pegs And then you look below it at Homage to Greece, hanging right below it, and you get those very, very subtle nail heads, which again are translated later in works like the seminal work The Tree at the Museum of Modern Art, a grid made of graphite. And so you see Martin collapsing those three-dimensional elements of texture, of depth, of movement, of all of those very, very subtle painterly and sculptural qualities, into the two-dimensional format of a painting
0: awesome christina rosenberger thanks for talking with me
2: thank you tyler it was a pleasure
0: that's all for this week's show the modern art notes podcast is edited by wilson butterworth special thanks to steve roden who created the sound for the program the modern art notes podcast is released under a creative commons license please visit modern art notes for more information thanks for listening